My beloved brethren and sisters, with a heart full of gratitude, I stand before you today thankful for your faith and prayers, for life itself and all its blessings. Today at this Easter time, I will speak a few words about what constitutes a valiant testimony of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, a most priceless blessing available to every member of the Church is a testimony of the divinity of Jesus Christ and his church. A testimony is one of the few possessions we may take with us when we leave this life. To have a testimony of Jesus is to possess knowledge through the Holy Ghost of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. A testimony of Jesus is to know the divine nature of our Lord's birth, that he is indeed the only begotten Son in the flesh. A testimony of Jesus is to know that he was the promised Messiah, and that while he sojourned among men, he accomplished many mighty miracles. A testimony of Jesus is to know that the laws which he prescribed as his doctrine are true, and then to abide by these laws and ordinances. To possess a testimony of Jesus is to know that he voluntarily took upon himself the sins of all mankind in the garden of Gethsemane, which caused him to suffer in both body and spirit and to bleed from every pore. All this he did so that we would not have to suffer if we would repent. To possess a testimony of Jesus is to know, is to know that he came forth triumphantly from the grave with a physical resurrected body. And because he lives, so shall all mankind. To possess a testimony of Jesus is to know that God the Father and Jesus Christ did indeed appear to the prophet Joseph Smith to establish a new dispensation of his gospel so that salvation may be preached to all nations before he comes. To possess a testimony of Jesus is to know that the church which he established in the meridian of time and restored in modern times is, as the Lord has declared, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. To possess a testimony of Jesus is to receive the words of his servants, the prophets. For as he has said, 
whether by my own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. A testimony of Jesus means that you accept the divine mission of Jesus Christ, embrace his gospel, and do his works. It means you accept the prophetic mission of Joseph Smith and his successors. Speaking of those who will eventually receive the blessings of the celestial kingdom, the Lord said to Joseph Smith, quote, They are they who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given. These are they who are valiant in their testimony of Jesus, who, as the Lord has declared, overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who are just and true. Those who are just and true. What an apt expression for one valiant in the testimony of Jesus. They are courageous in defending truth and righteousness. These are members of the church who magnify their callings in the church, pay their tithes and offerings, live morally clean lives, sustain their church leaders by word and action, keep the Sabbath as a holy day, and obey all the commandments of God. To these the Lord has promised that all thrones and dominions, principalities and powers shall be revealed and set forth upon all those who have endured valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Concerning those who will receive the terrestrial or lesser kingdom, the Lord said, These are they who were not valiant, in the testimony of Jesus, wherefore they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. Close quote. Not to be valiant in one's testimony is a tragedy of eternal consequences. These are members who know this latter-day work is true, but who fail to endure to the end. Some may even, may even hold temple recommends, but do not magnify their callings in the church. Without valor, they do not take an affirmative stand for the kingdom of God. Some seek the praise, adulation, and honors of men. Others attempt to conceal their sins, and a few criticize those who preside over them. Considering some of the challenges which the church faces currently and which it will continue to face in the future, three statements of former church leaders come to mind. I give them to you. 
President Joseph F. Smith said, there are at least three dangers that threaten the church today. Within, they are flattery of prominent men in the world, false educational ideas, and sexual impurity. These three dangers are of greater concern today than when they were identified by President Smith. A second statement was a prophecy by Heber C. Kimball, counselor to President Brigham Young, speaking to members of the church who had come to the Salt Lake Valley, he declared, to meet the difficulties that are coming, it will be necessary for you to have a knowledge of the truth of this work for yourselves. The difficulties will be of such a character that the man or woman who does not possess this personal knowledge or witness will fall. If you have not got the testimony, live right and call upon the Lord and cease not till you obtain it. If you do not, you will not stand. The time will come when no man or woman will be able to endure on borrowed light. Each will have to be guided by the light within himself. If you don't have it, you will not stand. Therefore, seek for the testimony of Jesus and cleave to it that when the trying time comes, you may not stumble and fall. Close quote. The third statement is from President Harold B. Lee my boyhood companion and friend, and the 11th president of the church. Quote, We have some tight places to go before the Lord is through with this church and the world in this dispensation, which is the last dispensation which shall usher in the coming of the Lord. The gospel was restored to prepare a people ready to receive him. The power of Satan will increase. We see it in evidence on every hand. There will be inroads within the church. We will see those who profess membership, but secretly are plotting and trying to lead people not to follow the leadership that the Lord has set up to preside in this church. Now, the only safety we have as members of the church is to do exactly what the Lord said to the church in that day when the church was organized. We must learn to give heed to the words and commandments that the Lord shall give through his prophet. As he receiveth them, walking in all patience and faith. There will be some things that take patience and faith. You may not like what comes from the authority of the church. 
But if you listen to these things as if from the mouth of the Lord himself, with patience and faith, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. Close quote. Now it seems to me that we have within those three prophetic statements the counsel we need the counsel that is necessary to stay valiant in our testimony of Jesus and the work of his church in these troubled times. One who rationalizes that he or she has a testimony of Jesus Christ but cannot accept direction and counsel from the leadership of his church is in a fundamentally unsound position and is in jeopardy and is in jeopardy of losing exaltation. There are some who want to expose the weaknesses of church leaders in an effort to show that they too are subject to human frailties and err like unto themselves. Let me illustrate the danger of this questionable philosophy. President Brigham Young revealed that on one occasion he was tempted to be critical of the Prophet Joseph Smith regarding a certain financial matter. He said that the feeling did not last for more than perhaps 30 seconds. That feeling, he said, caused him great sorrow in his heart. The lesson he gave to members of the church in his day may well be increased significantly today because the devil continues more active. President Young continues, I I clearly saw and understood by the spirit of revelation manifested to me that if I was to harbor a thought in my heart that Joseph could be wrong in anything, I would begin to lose confidence in him. And that feeling would grow from step to step and from one degree to another until at last I would have some lack of confidence in his being the mouthpiece of the Almighty. I repented of my unbelief, and that too very suddenly. I repented about as quickly as I committed the error. It was not for me to question whether Joseph was dictated by the Lord at all times and under all circumstances. It was not my prerogative to call him in question with regard to any act of his life. He was God's servant, not mine. He did not belong to the people, but to the Lord, and was doing the work of the Lord. Unquote. 
from the days of my youth. I have gratefully cherished a testimony of the truth of this glorious work in which we are engaged. I want you to know of my love for President Spencer W. Kimball and how grateful we are all that he's here with us at the closing session. I feel the same toward his counselors, my brethren of the Twelve, the Seventy, and the bishopric. I know them to be men appointed by our Lord under the inspiration of heaven. I sustain their inspired words in council and testify to you of the unity that we all feel among the general authorities of this church. I love you, the members of the church. I love all our Father's children and desire all to realize the blessings of eternal life. And I know that's what the Lord, our Savior and Redeemer, desires for each one of us. My appeal to all members of the church is to be valiant, true and loyal, true to the faith that our parents have cherished, true to the truth for which martyrs have perished, to God's command, soul, heart, and hand, faithful and true may we ever stand. I bear testimony that this is the church of Jesus Christ. He presides over it, and is close to his servants. God bless us all to be valiant in our testimony of him. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Others today have spoken about the temples, but last November... At the dedication of the Jordan River Temple, we held three services a day for five days, and we didn't say it all. This is a good time to talk about temples, and I would like to explain what temples are for. As a people, the Latter-day Saints have accomplished a magnificent work in the temples. They serve with commendable devotion to find the names of deceased relatives, to work in extracting names from the records, and then to perform the ordinances for the redemption of the dead, as well as for themselves. Over 16,000 temple workers give voluntary service in the temples, thus approaching the number in number the force of full-time missionaries who are proclaiming the gospel. This is a day of fulfillment of prophecy. As Isaiah said 2,700 years ago, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The meaning, depth, and power of that expression can only be perceived by those who know about temples. We are passing through a remarkable period in connection with the temples. Four more new temples were announced last week. The past two years have seen the number, including those in operation and those in planning or under construction, increase from 21 to 41. Three of these have been dedicated and have commenced their operation in the same period. Nothing of like nature has taken place in the entire history of the Church. The state conferences now being conducted throughout the Church are to teach the Latter-day Saints more about our mission to serve in the house of the Lord. I think it will serve a purpose to mention some generalizations and misconceptions about temples which have developed which show a less than perfect understanding. For example, it is sometimes said, My genealogy has all been done, or that computers and name extraction will do the work for me, or that temple work is for the dead. or that temple work is for old people, or that we go to the temple to do a name, or that going to the temple is optional. As we study the scriptures, we learn that the doctrine of the temples requires the following of the Latter-day Saints. And I could quote about these, but they don't give me enough time. First, the building of the temples. Second, going to the temple for our own blessings. Third, returning to perform the ordinances for deceased relatives. Fourth, doing the work for others as well. And fifth, frequent attendance for personal spiritual benefit. What are all these temples for? Well, first, temples are for the living members of the Church. Going to the temple is not optional. Temples are, quote, a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry, that they may be perfected in their understanding of all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on the earth. Therefore, verily I say unto you that your anointings and your washings, your solemn assemblies and your oracles in your most holy places are for the glory, honor, and endowment of Zion's municipals, or in other words, her citizens, and are ordained by the ordinance of my holy house, which my people are always commanded to build unto my holy name. End of quote. The endowment in the temple is a necessary and sacred blessing as essential for the members of the Church as baptism. Thereafter come the sealings of wives to their husbands and of children to their parents. Without these blessings there is no fullness of the gospel. As President Tuttle said, without them, the earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Countless families in distant areas have never had this privilege. Even in areas where temples have been established for generations, half the families have never been sealed together. Temple work is for the living members of the Church. Second, temple work is for the redemption of the dead. The scriptures and the doctrine, however, refer more specifically to a particular group of the dead, 
Malachi spoke about binding fathers to children and children to fathers. Joseph Smith emphasized temple blessings for our kindred dead, our dead. The emphasis is on the family. The priority is to seek out our own deceased relatives. Your genealogy has not all been done. My own grandparents performed all the temple work for their deceased relatives 55 years ago. Since that time, our family has discovered 16,000 others. In areas where new temples are being built, this work is just beginning. The controlled extraction process being carried on in many of the stakes of the Church with such great devotion and success does not touch those of the more recent generations and will not save those of our own close relationship. It is, however, of immeasurable value as the more distant generations are reached. And may we always remember that we perform the ordinances for people and not for names. Those we call the dead are alive in the Spirit and are present in the temple. The purpose of the Church, then, is to have a prepared people ready to receive the temples as they are completed. It would be unfortunate to build temples around the earth and have them stand largely idle. One way to prepare people is to give a strong sermon. Sometimes the result is that we feel guilty, and then after two weeks this feeling wears off and we get over it. I hope I won't make anyone feel guilty. But the answer to having a prepared people lies with the leadership of the priesthood. In Chile, for example, where I served at the time the temple in Santiago was announced, it was found that among 100,000 members, only 3,000 men had been ordained to the priesthood. Thus, since they must have the priesthood to enter the temple, only a limited number would be qualified. We determined, therefore, that we would prepare at least 10,000 men to be thus ordained. The saints in Chile have also undertaken the responsibility to prepare 100,000 names of their deceased relatives to take with them to the temple by the time it is ready. Similar preparations are being made in other areas. Now, where temples have long been established, it is time for a renewed and continuing preparation. This is the work of home teachers, quorum presidents, bishops, and especially high priests, as well as others involved in teaching the gospel. I remember one elders quorum president who determined that his leadership objective would be to help every member in his quorum go to the temple. His initial report stated that all but six had qualified. He later reported that all but three had gone before he was released. After his release, however, they got the other three. Now, having the privilege of working each day in the administration of the temples, I am constantly impressed with the richness, the holiness, and the glory of the blessings administered there. Questions come to us about the ordinances performed in the temple. We, of course, are not permitted to discuss them outside the temple because of their sacred nature. Others press for a preparatory orientation so that those who enter the temple will not be confused. I want to announce that the preparation to enter the temple lies in the gospel. 
Nothing is said or done in the temple which does not have its foundation in the scriptures. The gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This implies a willingness to accept his doctrine and take upon us his name, being obedient to his commandments. His gospel, the gospel is repentance and a cleansing from all iniquity. It is baptism whereby we have made the covenant and promise. It is the right to have the companionship of the Holy Ghost, which, when we have a correct frame of mind, will teach us as we go through the temple. The gospel is the scriptures. The answer to almost any appropriate question about the temple will be found in the scriptures for those who seek it. The gospel is prayer, humility, teachableness, charity, and it is commitment and it is covenant, it is also blessings. Now may I give some counsel to teachers, to bishops, and stake presidents. No one, of course, will learn all about the temple by only one experience, but if you want to prepare your people for the temple, teach them the gospel. Don't try to teach them what goes on in the temple. We go to the temple to learn about that. If these gospel principles are properly established in our lives, we will, be under, we will understand the temple all right. If they are not in place, nothing else can help, and those lacking that knowledge ought not yet to go. May God bless this people to embrace the blessings and perform the sacred service provided in the temples is my sincere prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We thank Thee, O God, for a prophet. I full-heartedly join in this singing. There has never been a time in the entire history of mankind when marriage and the institution of the family have been so endangered as in this generation. Nearly all the circumstances that have made family life in the past the most natural way for people to live together have changed. And it happened all in this brief span of the last 70 years. Just a little over a generation ago, members of the average family had to work a long day to provide a humble living, and the dark evenings found them huddled around a fire, enjoying one another's company and singing and sharing personal experiences. This was the natural way for education and entertainment and was nearly the perfect environment for a harmonious family life. Today, influences from literally unlimited sources through the media of radio, television, and print, together with numerous inventions of modern civilization, have drastically changed the historical cultural setting of the family. In this time of special challenge for marriage and the family, the Lord has restored, through his prophets in these latter days, the eternal dimension of that sacred covenant between husband and wife. 
and has charged us with a new awareness of the real purpose of the family. The integrity of this covenant became the center of revealed gospel truth in these latter days. Well summarized by the late prophet David O. McKay, who said, No other success can compensate for failure in the home. It is obvious that in marriage today, we cannot just merely depend on the patterns of the past without developing, perfecting, and putting into action that power that the Lord has given us as the greatest commandment, the commandment to love one another. Still after nearly 2,000 years, the people of the world are refusing to accept the words of the Savior found in Matthew. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Breath them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This love of Christ is, is, and his teaching to us is not the same as the words love. It doesn't mean just love the one who is nice and who behaves well and is respected and powerful and influential. Our Heavenly Father, through his prophets in these latter days, calls us to develop the love of God as a power, as a power from above that cannot be threatened through outward circumstances. This love of God, according to the prophet Nephi of the Book of Mormon, has to be achieved and is the most desirable of, of all things. However, as King Benjamin, another great Book of Mormon leader, teaches us, this love of God will not be in us as long as we remain in our natural state. The natural man is an enemy to God, he explains, we have to overcome this natural man, this enemy to God, our natural self. According to King Benjamin, we have to learn to listen to the entire things of the Holy Spirit and literally make a covenant with God, accepting the atonement of the Savior and becoming as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, and willing to submit to all things even as a child submits to his father. What a powerful message. And what a challenging responsibility. We have to learn to commit ourselves every day anew, to have our lives centered around this. This, the key commandment from God to his children. Moroni, another Book of Mormon prophet, tells us how we can achieve this love. Quote, but charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endures forever. And whoso is found possessed of it is at the last day, it shall be well with him. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye he may be filled with this love, which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ that ye may become the sons of God. End of quote. Our Heavenly Father wants to fill ourselves with his love, this love which is without condition. Filled with this love, we are prepared to receive the admonition to take upon ourselves the cross of our daily lives, 
and in humility learn to follow in his footsteps. According to the Savior's words found in Matthew chapter 10, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. A marriage that is built on this foundation of unconditional love and the covenant and oath of the eternal dimension does not know the two self-centered individuals living together as we often observe in this today's society. In the marriage that is built on the cornerstone of unconditional love, which is the love of God, the idea of a divorce is unthinkable. And even short separations bring unquenchable pain. Separations and divorces are a sign of weakness and sometimes wickedness. The Lord has given a clear teaching in behalf of the sacredness of this marriage covenant. We read in Matthew chapter 19 the words of the Savior as he expresses to the Pharisees, quote, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Therefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. The only way that we will not be suffering from the hardness of our hearts, as Christ explains, is to build within ourselves that power of love, literally asking our Heavenly Father for this gift of love, and becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becoming as a child in humility, that we can be filled with this unconditional love. And in this love, being in the Spirit, and with the Spirit, being directed in all our challenges of our lives. We know that we, in our imperfect bodies, in our strivings for perfection, are confronted with situations where members of our own families, or even a spouse, and behave like an enemy. Then the time comes when love as a power is needed and tested. For the person who has earned love the least needs it the most. In closing, I want to share with you a personal experience in our home. One day, when circumstances made it necessary for me to be at home in an unusual time, I witnessed from another room how our 11-year-old son, just returning from school, was directing ugly words towards his younger sister. They were words that offended me, words that I have never thought our son would use. My first natural reaction in my anger was to get up and to go after him. Fortunately, I had to walk across the room open a door before I could reach him. 
And I remember in those few seconds, I fervently prayed to my Heavenly Father to help me to handle the situation. Peace came over me. I was no longer angry. Our son, being shocked to see me home, was filled with fear when I approached him. (laughs) To my surprise, I heard myself saying, Welcome home, son. I extended my hand as a greeting. And then, in a formal style, I invited him to sit close to me in the living room for a personal talk. I heard myself expressing my love for him. I talked with him about the battle that every one of us has to fight each day within ourselves. And as I expressed my confidence in him, he broke down into tears, confessing his unworthiness and condemning himself beyond measure. Now it was my role to put his transgression in the proper perspective and to comfort him. A wonderful spirit came over us, and we ended up crying together, hugging each other in love and finally in joy. What could have been a disastrous confrontation between father and son became, through the help from the powers above, one of the most beautiful experiences of our relationship that we both have never forgotten. Brothers and sisters, I know that God lives that this is his church, that these are the days of preparation and warning. And I testify that when we are not fully exercising the love of God as a power, as he has commanded us to do, our marriages will be not strong, our families will be weak, and our own salvation will be in jeopardy. I bear you this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. By the testimony of skilled physicians, you're looking at a miracle as you see me at this pulpit. And I would be most ungrateful if I did not acknowledge before my Heavenly Father His intervention, the blessings of the Holy Priesthood, the support and prayers of my beloved wife, my brethren, family, and many here today. Now, with the help of the Spirit, I would like to speak of the future history of the Church. I do it by means of an example from our past history. The quarterly conference of the Parowan Stake in December 1879 witnessed the call of 49 men and their families to a new mission. The call came from President John Taylor in the Twelve to Elder Erastus Snow. Later, others joined the final company from nearby settlements. What followed became the Hole in the Rock expedition, an epic in Church history. 250 of our people, with 80 wagons, and hundreds of loose cattle and horses cut their way through the rough, unknown country of southeastern Utah. The area traversed remains one of the least known regions of the world today. Their objective was the San Juan country. 
In addition to desert cliffs and canyons, the gorge of the Colorado River stood in their way. No highway bridge crossed that chasm until 1934. No commercial airline flew from Utah to Arizona near their route until 1959. Seeking the shortest route, Mormon explorers found a narrow slit in Glen Canyon. The river ran 2,000 feet below the red cliffs. This hole in the rock seemed to offer the shortest route. Only a slit in the sheer cliffs, the hole was too narrow for teams and in some places even for a man. Sheer drops of as much as 75 feet made it impossible even for a mountain sheep, let alone loaded wagons. In December 1879, after a long journey that left the Parowan and Cedar Valleys the previous April, a precipitous primitive road was cut down that hole with blasting powder and tools. Elder Platt D. Lyman, leading the party, found that if a road could be built, it would drop eight feet every 16 and a half, the first third of the way to the river. Thereafter came the several sheer precipices, but the party was prepared. With faith, they were equipped not only for blasting cliffs and carving passages, but for building a raft boat capable of ferrying teams and wagons across the river. A road was built and a boat made by January 25, 1880. Now came the effort to get the families and the first 40 wagons camped at the rim down the hole. The others back at 50 Mile Spring would follow later. Cuman Jones has left a description of the method of descent. 20 men and boys would hold long ropes back of each wagon. The, heels were, the wheels were brake-locked with chains. Otherwise, rolling wheels would pitch unchecked into the struggling team. On January 26, 1880, a month later, Platt D. Lyman recorded in his journal, Today we worked all the wagons in the camp down the hole and ferried 26 of them across the river. The boat is worked by one pair of oars and does very well. The family of Joseph Stanford Smith and his wife Arabella was the last to descend that day. A grandson, Raymond Smith Jones, had described their experience. I doubt that a modern film company with millions of dollars in engineering resources could film this epic. Stanford Smith had helped the preceding wagons down that long day. His outfit had evidently been forgotten. Deeply disturbed, he climbed the 2,000-foot incline. He found Arabella sitting on a quilt, holding the baby, patiently waiting. His outfit and their two other children were in the wagon hidden behind a huge mountainous rock. Stanford Smith moved his load to the edge. A third horse was hitched to the rear axle. Stanford and Arabella looked down the hole. He said, I'm afraid we can't make it. The wife replied, we must make it. 
He said, If we had a few men to hold the wagon back, we could. Replied his wife, I'll do the holding back. A quilt was laid on the ground. There she placed the baby between the legs of three-year-old Roy. Hold little brother till Papa comes for you, she said. Ada, the older girl, was placed in front of them. Behind the wagon, Bell Smith grasped the lines of the horse hitched to the rear. Stanford started the team down the hole. The wagon lurched downward. The rear horse and Bell were thrown from their feet. Recovering, she hung back, pulling on the lines with all her strength and courage. A jagged rock cut a cruel gash in her leg from heel to hip. The horse behind the wagon fell to his haunches. The half-dead animals dragged down most of the way. The gallant woman, clothes torn, with a grievous wound, later said, I crow-hopped right along. On reaching the bottom, a faint call was heard from the children. Joseph Stanford Smith climbed to the top to get them. They were safely in place. Carrying the baby, the other children clung to him and to each other. He led them down the rocky crack. As they approached the river's edge, five men carrying chains and ropes were seen in the distance. The Smiths had been missed. The men were coming to help. Stanford called out, Forget it, fellows. My wife is all a fellow needs. The history of the church is filled with such thrilling episodes. This history is the heritage of the most recent convert, whether in Asia, Africa, or elsewhere in the world. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. We face serious challenges today. Our Latter-day Saint homes throughout the world producing men and women of courage and obedient children. Will our children stay in place and not fall into the dangerous defiles of life? What kind of history are Latter-day Saints today producing for the future history of the Church? Plains and oceans have been crossed. The hole in the rock has been conquered. How are we laboring today? Great events lie before us. The second coming of Christ. What is the significance of the many new temples that have been announced? What is implied for us in the revelation to the prophet Joseph in 1831? The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth. And from thence shall the gospel roll forth and to the ends of the earth. There is a great church history behind us. There is an even greater church history ahead of us for every member, every unit of the church. That history is being made every day, some way in Korea, the Philippines, the Andes, and every stake. The vision of the new Jerusalem has moved generations of mankind. It moves our people. We look to the day when Christ will reign personally upon the earth. But as the prophet Malachi asked, who can abide the day of his coming? 
and who shall stand when he appeareth? Let us prepare to abide the day of his coming by building Zion in our hearts, in our families, as we make pages for the future history of the Church. President Kimball has told us repeatedly to beautify our lives, our homes. He has challenged us to render more Christ-like service. I testify that the gospel of Jesus Christ is restored to the prophet Joseph Smith is the power of God unto salvation, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, that God the Father lives, and that President Spencer W. Kimball is the Lord's living prophet today. If we respond to his prophetic leadership, as the Hole in the Rock pioneers did to call the President John Taylor, we will help prepare the time when Christ shall reign King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We must prepare now to abide the day of his coming. The future history of the Church can then be marked by successful passage through times of trial and adversity, that we may each do our part, loving the Lord and our fellow men in doing so, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, if we were to speak of the very center of spiritual strength in the Church, surely it must be in the sacred ordinances of the temple of the Lord. It is not generally known that almost the first words of the Lord to the Prophet Joseph, the intent of the gathering and the building up of the Church, and almost the last words of the Lord to the Prophet pertain to temple work. After the wondrous first vision of the prophet in the spring of 1820, three and a half years passed. The next divine manifestation he had was when the angel Moroni appeared to him. He told Joseph about the Book of Mormon. Because of the preeminence of this message, most people do not realize that Moroni brought another momentous message. First, he quoted with some variation, the prophecy of Malachi. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming." End quote. Moroni also quoted from Isaiah, Acts, Joel, and many other passages of Scripture. The prophecy of Malachi concerning Elijah was treated differently from all of the other scriptures. It was considered of such unique importance that it now appears as section 2 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Moroni's message signaled the prophet that Elijah soon would appear. The foreordained events pertaining to temple work began to unroll like a scroll. Less than a year and a half 
after the organization of the church, the prophet dedicated the site for the temple in Jackson County, Missouri, but the saints were prevented from building it. Then followed a score of significant events pertaining to the building of the house of the Lord. The first temple completed was Kirtland, built under great difficulties. The dedication of this temple was accompanied by the visitation of angels and fire resting upon the temple. Some saw visions and experienced other glorious manifestations. On the 3rd of April, 1836, one week after the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, the monumental event occurred. The Savior appeared and accepted the temple. Moses and Elias also came. Then Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled, for Elijah the prophet stood before them and said, Behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. Therefore, the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands, and by this ye may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is at hand, even at the doors. That event occurred 146 years ago yesterday, on the day that the Jews were celebrating their traditional ritual. For more than two millennia, the Jews have looked for the coming of Elijah. This week, in connection with the Feast of the Passover, they will reenact the scene as they have done for centuries. They will set a place at their table reserve an empty chair, open the door, raise their cups, and rise as if to greet Elijah. But Elijah has returned. Thanks be to God. He bestowed his keys. Work could now commence in the temples to weld eternal links between husbands and wives, between parents and children, through the sealing power of God. It is essential to obtain the sealing power of the holy priesthood so that whatsoever an authorized officiator shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. For in the sacred ordinances and through this sacred power comes glory and honor and eternal life. It is by this power that husband and wife are sealed in a never-ending bond of marriage. It is by this power that a welding link is forged between children and parents. This is the holy power that is exercised in the temple. It is the power that validates all ordinances in the Church. This is the consummate authority in the kingdom of God. Without the authority and use of that power in all ages of the world, 
none of our Heavenly Father's children can enter His presence or ever become like Him. And if this were not so, the whole purpose of existence would be useless. That is why the Lord said the whole earth would be utterly wasted at His coming. Almost the last words of the Lord to the prophet, so far as we can tell, also pertain to temple work. The Lord commanded the prophet to build the temple in Kirtland or in Nauvoo. They set about to do it. Prior to its completion, the Lord revealed his sacred ordinances, quote, things which have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. The order of performing baptism for the dead was revealed. Also, the Lord required that witnesses verify the performance of ordinances, that in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. And finally, the members of the twelve apostles were endowed and the sealing authority conveyed to them, thereafter never to be lost. They could now carry on the fullness of the gospel. These crucial things the Lord revealed to the prophet Joseph only months before his martyrdom. From this brief account of significant events in the life of the prophet, it becomes apparent that his first and foremost duty was to build temples and restore the sealing power to perform sacred and eternal ordinances. All the prophets since his time have likewise shown a concern for this work. During President Kimball's presidency, more temples have been constructed than in any other time. We are now truly taking temples to the people. And now, brothers and sisters, I want to testify concerning this sacred work. I know that it is true. The principles are eternal. The ordinances are divine. They are eternal. Framed before the world was, you and I are responsible to carry on this work. The Lord has no one else to do it. Surely this is not an onerous burden. It is a privilege. A temple recommend is one of the highest accolades we may receive. To use it regularly permits us to participate in the choicest gifts within the keeping of the Church. Those who attend feel a special spirit there. Peace comes. I know that service there assists the departed one to gain exaltation. And I know that they in turn qualify for blessings from the other side of the veil. And I know that blessings will follow you home from the temple. God lives. Jesus is the Christ. This is the consummate work of the kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.